0: Chapter 8, Part 3 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dini Steyn, Kelowna, Canada. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 3, Mary Stewart, by Alexandre Dumas, Chapter 8, Part 3. In spite of this promise, the French lords waited two days more. At last, on the second day towards evening, two English gentlemen sought out Monsieur Lefebvre in London. And, viva voce, without any letter to confirm what they were charged to say, announced to him, on behalf of their queen, that in reply to the letter that they had written her, and to do justice to the desire they had shown to obtain for the condemned, a reprieve during which they would make known the decision to the King of France. Her Majesty would grant twelve days. As this was Elizabeth's last word, and it was useless to lose time in pressing her further, Monsieur de Genlis was immediately dispatched to His Majesty the King of France, to whom, besides the long dispatch of Monsieur de Châteauneuf and de Believre, which he was charged to remit, he was to say, Viva Voce! What he had seen and heard relative to the affairs of Queen Mary during the whole time he had been in England, Henry the Third responded immediately with a letter containing fresh instructions for Messieurs de Chateauneuf and de Believre. But in spite of all the haste Monsieur de Jeanlieu could make, he did not reach London till the fourteenth day—that is to say, forty-eight hours after the expiration of the delay granted. Nevertheless. As the sentence had not yet been put into execution, Messieurs de Bellievre and de Chateauneuf set out at once for Greenwich Castle, some miles from London, where the Queen was keeping Christmas, to beg her to grant them an audience, in which they could transmit to Her Majesty their King's reply. But they could obtain nothing for four or five days. However, as they were not disheartened and returned unceasingly to the charge, January 6th, Messieurs de Bellievre and de Châteauneuf were at last sent for by the Queen. As on the first occasion, they were introduced with all the ceremonial in use at the time, and found Elizabeth in an audience chamber. The ambassadors approached her, greeted her, and Monsieur de Bellievre began to address to her with respect, but at the same time with firmness, his master's remonstrances. Elizabeth listened to them with an impatient air, fidgeting in her seat. Then, at last, unable to control herself, she burst out, rising and growing red with anger. Monsieur de Villivre, she said, are you really charged by the king, my brother, to speak to me in such a way? Yes, madame, replied Monsieur de Villivre, bowing. I am expressly commanded to do so. And have you this command under his hand? continued Elizabeth. Yes, madame, returned the ambassador, with the same calmness; and the king, my master, your good brother, has expressly charged me, in letters signed by his own hand, to make to your majesty the remonstrances which I have had the honor to address to you." "Well!" cried Elizabeth, no longer containing herself, "I demand of you a copy of that letter, signed by you, and reflect that you will answer for each word that you take away or add. Madame, answered Monsieur de Believre, it is not the custom of the kings of France, or of their agents, to forge letters or documents. You will have the copies you require tomorrow morning, and I pledge their accuracy on my honor. Enough, sir, enough, said the queen, and signing to everyone in the room to go out, she remained nearly an hour with Messieurs de Chateauneuf and de Believre. No one knows what passed in that interview, except that the Queen promised to send an ambassador to the King of France, who, she promised, would be in Paris, if not before, at least at the same time as Monsieur de Bellievre, and would be the bearer of her final resolve as to the affairs of the Queen of Scotland. Elizabeth then withdrew, giving the French envoys to understand that any fresh attempt they might make to see her would be useless. On the 13th of January, the ambassadors received their passports and at the same time noticed that a vessel of the Queen's was awaiting them at Dover. The very day of their departure, a strange incident occurred. A gentleman named Stafford, a brother of Elizabeth's ambassador to the King of France, presented himself at Monsieur de Trappes, one of the officials in the French chancellery, telling him that he was acquainted with a prisoner for debt, who had a matter of the utmost importance to communicate to him, and that he might pay the greater attention to it, he told him that this matter was connected with the service of the King of France, and concerned the affairs of Queen Mary of Scotland. Monsieur de Trappe, although mistrusting this overture from the first, did not want, in case his suspicions deceived him, to have to reproach himself for any neglect on such a pressing occasion. He repaired then, with Mr. Stafford, to the prison, where he who wished to converse with him was detained. When he was with him, the prisoner told him that he was locked up for a debt of only twenty crowns, and that his desire to be at liberty was so great that if M. de Chateauneuf would pay that sum for him, he would undertake to deliver the Queen of Scotland from her danger by stabbing Elizabeth. To this proposal, Monsieur de Trappe, who saw the pitfall laid to the French ambassador, was greatly astonished, and said that he was certain that Monsieur de Chateauneuf would consider as very evil every enterprise having as its aim to threaten in any way the life of Queen Elizabeth or the peace of the realm. Then, not desiring to hear more, He returned to Monsieur de Chateauneuf and related to him what had just happened. Monsieur de Chateauneuf, who perceived the real cause of this overture, immediately said to Mr. Stafford that he thought it strange that a gentleman like himself should undertake with another gentleman such treachery, and requested him to leave the embassy at once and never to set foot there again. Then Stafford withdrew, and appearing to think himself a lost man, he implored Monsieur de Trappes to allow him to cross the channel with him and the French envoys. Monsieur de Trappes referred him to Monsieur de Chateauneuf, who answered Mr. Stafford directly that he had not only forbidden him his house, but also all relations with any person from the embassy, that he must thus very well see that his request could not be granted. He added that if he were not restrained by the consideration he desired to keep to his brother, the Earl of Stafford, his colleague, he would at once denounce his treason to Elizabeth, the same day Stafford was arrested. After this conference, Monsieur de Trappes set out to rejoin his travelling companions, who were some hours in advance of him, when, on reaching Dover, he was arrested in his turn and brought back to prison in London. Interrogated the same day, Monsieur de Trappe frankly related what had passed, appealing to M. de Chateauneuf as to the truth of what he said. The day following there was a second interrogatory, and great was his amazement when, on requesting that the one of the day before should be shown him, he was merely shown, according to custom in English law, counterfeit copies, in which were avowals compromising him as well as M. de Chateauneuf. He objected and protested, refused to answer or to sign anything further, and was taken back to the tower with redoubled precaution, the object of which was the appearance of an important accusation. Next day, M. de Châteauneuf was summoned before the Queen, and there confronted with Stafford, who impudently maintained that he had treated of a plot with M. de Trappe and a certain prisoner for debt, a plot which aimed at nothing less than endangering the Queen's life. M. de Chateauneuf defended himself with the warmth of indignation, but Elizabeth had too great an interest in being unconvinced even to attend to the evidence. She then said to M. de Chateauneuf that his character of ambassador alone prevented her having him arrested like his accomplice, M. de Trappes, and immediately dispatching, as she had promised, an ambassador to King Henry three she charged him not to excuse her for the sentence which had just been pronounced, and the death which must soon follow, but to accuse Monsieur de Chateauneuf of having taken part in a plot of which the discovery alone had been able to decide her to consent to the death of the Queen of Scotland, certain as she was by experience that so long as her enemy lived, her existence would be hourly threatened. On the same day, Elizabeth made haste to spread, not only in London, but also throughout England, the rumor of the fresh danger from which she had escaped, so that, when two days after the departure of the French envoys, the Scottish ambassadors, who, as one sees, had not used much speed, arrived, the Queen answered them that their request came unseasonably, at a time when she had just had proof that, so long as Mary Stuart existed, her own elizabeth's life was in danger robert melville wished to reply to this but elizabeth flew into a passion saying that it was he melville who had given the king of scotland the bad advice to intercede for his mother and that if she had such an adviser, she would have him beheaded to which melville answered that at the risk of his life he would never spare his master good advice and that on the contrary He who would counsel a son to let his mother perish would deserve to be beheaded. Upon this reply, Elizabeth ordered the Scotch envoys to withdraw, telling them that she would let them have her answer. Three or four days passed, and as they heard nothing further, they asked again for a parting audience to hear the last resolve of her to whom they were sent. The Queen then decided to grant it, and all passed, as with Monsieur de Blièvre, in recrimination and complaints. Finally, Elizabeth asked them what guarantee they would give for her life in the event of her consenting to pardon the Queen of Scotland. The envoys responded that they were authorized to make pledges in the name of the King of Scotland, their master, and all the lords of his realm, that Mary Stuart should renounce in favour of her son all her claims upon the English crown, and that she should give as security this undertaking the king of france and all the princes and lords his relations and friends to this answer the queen without her usual presence of mind cried what are you saying melville that would be to arm my enemy with two claims while he has only one does your majesty then regard the king my master as your enemy replied melville he believed himself happier madame and thought he was your ally No, no, Elizabeth said, blushing, it is a way of speaking, and if you find a means of reconciling everything, gentlemen, to prove to you, on the contrary, that I regard King James VI as my good and faithful ally, I am quite ready to incline to mercy. Seek, then, on your side, added she, while I seek on mine. With these words she went out of the room, and the ambassadors retired, with the light of the hope of which she had just let them catch a glimpse. The same evening a gentleman at the court sought out the master of Grey, the head of the embassy, as if to pay him a civil visit, and while conversing said to him that it was very difficult to reconcile the safety of Queen Elizabeth with the life of her prisoner, that besides, if the Queen of Scotland were pardoned, and she or her son ever came to the English throne, there would be no security for the Lord's commissioners, who had voted her death, that there was then only one way of arranging everything, that the King of Scotland should himself give up his claims to the Kingdom of England, that otherwise, according to him, there was no security for Elizabeth in saving the life of the Scottish Queen, the Master of Grey then, looking at him fixedly, asked him if his sovereign had charged him to come to him with this talk, but the gentleman denied it, saying that all this was on his own account and in the way of opinion. Elizabeth received the envoys from Scotland once more, and then told them that, after having well considered, she had found no way of saving the life of the Queen of Scotland while securing her own, that accordingly she could not grant it to them. To this declaration the master of grey replied, that since it was then he was, in this case, ordered by his master to say that they protested in the name of King James, that all that had been done against his mother was of no account, seeing that Queen Elizabeth had no authority over a queen, as she was her equal in rank and birth, that accordingly they declared that immediately after their return, and when their master should know the result of their mission, he would assemble his parliament and send messengers to all of the Christian princes to take counsel with them as to what could be done to avenge her whom they could not save. Then Elizabeth again flew into a passion, saying that they had certainly not received from their king a mission to speak to her in such a way, but they thereupon offered to give her this protest in writing, under their signatures, to which Elizabeth replied that she would send an ambassador to arrange all that with her good friend and ally, the King of Scotland. But the envoys then said that their master would not listen to anyone before their return, upon which Elizabeth begged them not to go away at once, because she had not yet come to her final decision upon this matter. On the evening following this audience, Lord Hingley, having come to see the Master of Grey, and having seemed to notice some handsome pistols which came from Italy, Gray, directly he had gone, asked this nobleman's cousin to take them to him as a gift from him. Delighted with this pleasant commission, the young man wished to perform it the same evening and went to the Queen's Palace, where his relative was staying, to give him the present which he had been told to take to him. But hardly had he passed through a few rooms, than he was arrested, searched, and the arms he was taking were found upon him. Although these were not loaded, he was immediately arrested. Only he was not taken to the tower, but kept a prisoner in his own room. Next day there was a rumor that the Scotch ambassadors had wanted to assassinate the Queen in their turn, and that pistols, given by the Master of Grey himself, had been found on the assassin. This bad faith could not but open the envoy's eyes. Convinced at last that they could do nothing for poor Mary Stuart, they left her to her fate, and set out next day for Scotland. Scarcely were they gone when Elizabeth sent her secretary, Davison, to Sir Amyas Paulette. He was instructed to sound him again, and with regard to the prisoner, afraid, in spite of herself, of a public execution. The Queen had reverted to her former ideas of poisoning or assassination. But Sir Amyas Paulette declared that he would let no one have access to Mary but the executioner, who must in addition be the bearer of a warrant perfectly in order. Davison reported this answer to Elizabeth, who, while listening to him, stamped her foot several times, and when he had finished, unable to control herself, cried, God's death! There's a dainty fellow, always talking of his fidelity and not knowing how to prove it. Elizabeth was then obliged to make up her mind. She asked Davison for the warrant. He gave it to her, and forgetting that she was the daughter of a queen who had died on the scaffold, she signed it without any trace of emotion. Then, having affixed it to the Great Seal of England, Go, she said, laughing, tell Walsingham that all is ended for Queen Mary but tell him with precautions, for as he is ill, I am afraid he will die of grief when he hears it. The jest was the more atrocious in that Walsingham was known to be the Queen of Scotland's bitterest enemy. Towards evening of that day, Saturday the 14th, Beale, Walsingham's brother-in-law, was summoned to the palace. The Queen gave into his hands the death warrant, and with it an order addressed to the Earls of Shrewsbury, Kent. Rutland, and other noblemen in the neighborhood of Fotheringay, to be presented at the execution. Beale took with him the London executioner, whom Elizabeth had had dressed in black velvet for this great occasion, and set out two hours after he had received his warrant. End of chapter 8